but more times than not, the billing staff was not trained or educated on how to bill this new service that's being performed. And, you know, maybe they build the first level of Spinal Cord Simulator correctly, but they build the second level at a dollar. Well, no, I, I realize that sounds like a like an outside kind of outlier situation, but it was not. I've seen that on more than one occasion. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined again by friend of the show, Tina Rivenbark. Tina runs Advanced Practice Solutions out of North Carolina, and she and I have uh, been working together a lot to try to help our clients, our mutual clients, solve some of the complex business problems that the practice of medicine often presents. She does a lot of work in the pain management space, and we're going to spend some time today talking about how to help physicians assess the quantitative and qualitative considerations around buying into a surgery center and all that that entails. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. I always appreciate the invite. Never turn it down. So I have gone on record in the past (laughs) saying that uh, access to a surgery center as a pain physician is in some cases the most important part of an employment agreement. And I stand by that (laughs) in some cases, but any particular job offer, any particular employment agreement and the associated things that you're going to do for practice has a number of factors, number of variables. And even if we just zoom in on the surgery center itself and can I access a surgery center as an equity owner, there's a lot of things to think about. And we've talked on the show at length in the past about legal considerations, partnership considerations. And today I want to talk about some of the operational and financial considerations with someone who's an expert on these things. So Tina, what's your experience as far as, you know, you're, you like me are kind of in the trenches talking to pain doctors. You're trying to, you know, hire them in some cases with the practices that you help to run. How do doctors tend to think about surgery centers? I think that varies depending on the position and their level of experience and how far or how deep they perhaps have dug into employment opportunities and options. And it seems like it's kind of polarized. Either they don't think about it at all, which, you know, you've been super helpful to this group, kind of shining the light on how that can be a part of their big picture and, and meeting their goals, hopes, and dreams. Or they think about it as kind of a magic bullet overcoming all else that may be bad around an option or opportunity. So in the conversations you and I have had, like, how do we make this more simplified? Like, I would love to just build a spreadsheet and say, plug in this, 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 and this. And it'll tell you whether A is the right answer or B is the right answer. But I've yet to figure out how to drill it down to that level. But I think just from a high level, keeping in mind if, you know, if part of a surgery center is an equity position and part of a surgery center is part of a comp package or an employment offer, what does that look like? 
do they want you in the surgery center because they're wanting to fill bandwidth that's within the surgery center? And that's okay. But what are you giving up in doing that? So for example, surgical center rooms naturally take longer to turn over than procedure rooms within a private clinic. Naturally, that's common. Even at high performing surgical centers, you know, a goal to turn over a room would be seven to 10 minutes. And in a private practice, that's, it's a fraction of that. So, you know, just that lost productivity in the time turnover is one. But as a fellow or a new doc or someone that's not intimately involved in the billing and AR, even if you are in an employed situation, understanding the loss revenue for the side of service billing. So for example, if you were to do a spinal cord stem trial within the procedure room within your office and the, the side of service billing is outpatient physician office, that has one reimbursement. The same procedure in an ASC or a hospital setting because the side of service is different, has a completely different reimbursement. And that's based on, and rightfully so, theoretically, you know, that that the facilities providing the staff, the supplies, the space, the whatever for you to perform that service. So your profi should be reduced in that setting. And then the facility should be reimbursed at a higher rate to compensate for all those things that they're providing that you're not. Right. So that's that's logical. The only problem is the revenue that the that the physician provider is giving up by performing procedures in a surgery center that could very easily be easily be done in the office setting is significant. So it may be 30, 40, 50% if you're talking about an injection in the office versus an injection in the ASC. Comparably or incomparably, a spinal cord simulator trial in the office may reimburse you two levels, $3,500, $3,600. And that same trial done in an ASC by the same provider, same STEM company, everything else is being being unchanged, may reimburse you five or $600. So there's a huge difference there. And that clearly would have significant impact on the amount of revenue you're able to generate. Yeah. So if I'm a pain doctor and I'm thinking, in what cases... Does this matter? Because it's easy to have your eyes glaze over. We're talking about site of service differential and like reimbursement rates and office versus surgery. Right. And it gets pretty technical pretty quickly. But the reality is this is going to have a very, like it gets very practical <laughs> very quickly too, because we're talking about how much money you're making and how you're right. compensated. And so if you're being paid on a percent of collections and you're getting paid a, on a percent of collections, yeah, you're getting paid up you know, for the work in your office, you're doing perhaps a higher volume because you have better turnover and the professional fee the, the amount of reimbursement associated with the work the physician is doing is often significantly more in the office. And that is something that isn't always apparent if we're doing the same thing in the surgery center. And if you're not an owner in said surgery center, you're getting the whole slice of the professional fee pie, but it's a smaller slice in the surgery much center. Smaller. Yeah, much, um, much and smaller. the what's known as the technical component, the overhead and the malpractice parts of the RVU calculation are going to the facility. And that Correct. is going to be split by the owners of the surgery center. So one day when the physician is a part owner in that surgery center, then they're rendering the services, they're getting the profi, and they're also getting their pro rata share of the profits 
that result from the technical component, but on the front end, in your first couple of years when, you know, the prospective partners in the surgery center are like, all right, Dr. Smith, we want to make sure that you can really build up volume. So you're going to bring some X number of cases here or as many as you can. You're going to prove your worth and then we'll offer you shares eventually. Whenever that happens, there's a compensation event for you as a physician. There's an opportunity cost when you're driving those cases to a surgery center because you're getting a smaller piece of the pie and you're not getting any of the profits associated with that work. And so it can be, you know, it, and this is, in some cases, it's just how it works. So it's not inherently like bad or immoral, but it is a dynamic to be aware of that there's an opportunity cost on the front end that is sort of part of the process of paying your dues in some cases. And it does have a real economic impact. Absolutely. It's consistent with the relationship between hospitals and employed physicians or hospitals and PSA physicians. Do the hospitals want you in your net in their network because they need to feel that need of that specialty? Sure, absolutely. Do they want you in, in their network because it's a service to the community? Absolutely. Nearly every community needs a well-trained, well-practicing interventional pain provider. But at the end of the day, it's a financial decision for them. And the financial decision is every, every encounter done in an outpatient hospital clinic with the side-of-service outpatient hospital facility is creating an additional revenue component for the facility. So uh, I've been involved with PSA arrangements between private practices and, and hospitals on a number of levels. And one of the things that we battled with in feedback and relationships between the patients and the providers is, you know, patients will call up and say, I just had a new patient appointment and I got a $200 bill from the physician and I got a $300 bill from the hospital for being seen in that space. And, you know, not only is it more expensive, it creates a different type of payment structure because outpatient hospital facility, in most cases, or most policies these days are subject to your large deductible and your 20% or 30% coinsurance versus your 50 or 100, $150 copay for that actual encounter in an office. Yes. So the bottom line is it's complicated. And looking at the full orbed view in terms of, it's not a binary question of, does this offer have a surgery center associated with it? Yes or no. And if yes, good. If no, bad. It's it's a, there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, I mean, th th there's obviously there's huge advantage to be had in having an equity position and getting returns on a widget machine that's creating revenue, no matter what it looks like, right? It just depends. In this case, what are what are you sacrificing to get that, or what are you giving up to be a part of that? And and making like realistic comparisons between the two, I think, is kind of key. Yeah. Another thing that I've seen, and I'm curious if you've seen this, Tina, we were talking before we hit record here. It's it's not uncommon. I've seen this at least several times where a doctor is offered shares in a surgery center. And it's like, hey, Dr. Smith, you know, here's the terms you want to buy in. It's $50,000 for 1%. Take it or leave it. And there's absolutely no context for what $50,000 is getting me other than 1% of something that maybe I might not even be able to see the operating agreement. Presumably there's a company out there that has some rules about how it's run and there's other partners and there's financial statements, you know, profit and loss, balance sheet, cash flows. Presumably all that exists, but I, it's not uncommon for doctors to be asked to make a decision to invest in a 
somewhat complex business venture without even being offered many of those basic supporting documents. Well, and, and, and that's kind of crazy, right? Because if you were investing in any other type of entity, be it, let's say you're a VC or you're an angel investor and you go to invest in an ice cream shop, 1% of an ice cream shop that's losing money means you're going to have a capital call <laughs> period after period after period, right? So, you know, <laughs> you, you can you can be an owner and and have that say so and whatever voting rights the 1% may or may not get you. But if it's a losing proposition, it's just basically creating another dependent on your tax return. Yeah. And the P&L is obviously like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of how is a business performing? If I'm going to buy a share of a business, I want to know, is the business making money? Is there revenue? What mm -hmm. are the expenses? And is there a profit at the end of the day? Because that profit, a share of that profit is what you're buying. And if right. you're buying a 1% stake in a company, 1% of the bottom line is going to be yours. And if the bottom line is negative, to your point, then that is not doing you any favors. And mm -hmm. if the buy-in is $50,000 for 1%, and I'm not going to be good at doing math on, my on the fly in my head here, so I'm not going to try. But the point is, what, that's, what that implies, that a certain dollar value for a certain percentage is implying mm -hmm. a certain multiple of profit that you're purchasing. So often in like private equity parlance, we're talking about buying at a multiple of EBITDA. So E-B-I-T-D-A is a, right. an acronym, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which basically means profit. So if you're buying something at a multiple of profit, that's a way to value a company. If a company is very efficient, very well infrastructured, and self-sustaining and has a lot of growth prospects. You know, just to use an example, the S&P 500. So publicly traded companies on the S&P 500 traded about 16 to 20 times EBITDA historically. A surgery, uh, an office-based pain practice maybe is one time. A surgery center maybe is three to five to seven times, depending on how well it's run and other variables. So right. if you're if you're paying $50,000 for a 1% stake, why is it a 1% stake and not a 5% stake or a 10% stake? <laughs> the answer lies in what they're doing is there's a, another variable there that's the multiple, the, the multiplier that determines how much equity you're buying for that $50,000 outlay. And it's related to the P&L. So this is probably obvious, but it's, <laughs> it's never a good idea to buy a business if you don't know if it's making money. <laughs> And, and yet, and yet doctors are often asked to do just that. So, you know, it's buyer beware. I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you not to do it, but I can tell you there are certain profound challenges with buying something that you don't know what it's worth and significant risks that you need to make sure that are worth it for you. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it you know, it can definitely be like we said earlier, a key part of your long-term strategy for growth in financial planning. But you wouldn't buy a car without driving it. You wouldn't buy a house without walking through it. Hopefully have it inspected. So that it's it's not a big ask to get the information that you need to make an educated decision. And as an owner, one of the ways that this, you know, I'm talking about these multiples, one of the ways that that does can benefit you is if you can buy in 
if it's a newer surgery center, they're trying to increase volume, they're trying to build a coalition of physicians who are going to bring their patients to a certain place and create a profitable business and you buy in for 0.5 or one times EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And then you grow the business so that, that one time is worth a bigger number and then you sell at a higher multiple, say three or five or seven times to one of these national chains. That's where there's, and, and that's why I am passionate about the opportunity that this presents, it can be a really important wealth building mechanism for physicians. Cause yeah. it's when you own a piece of the bottom line, it can be really valuable, but you got to make sure it's a business that can actually, <laughs> can actually follow that arc or else it's all just uh, imaginary really. Yeah, absolutely. Another consideration, uh, you know, is the CON um, facet, which gets into the state specific laws. Can you talk a little bit about what that means, Tina? So certificate of need in, in certain states, you are required to, if you're adding ORs, sometimes MRIs, um, ASC, sometimes complicated procedure suites, you would be required to file an application for a certificate of need in that area. And that's designed to help maintain, create and maintain access to healthcare for all. So for example, if you're if you are in a rural county of 10,000 residents and there's a hospital in that area with two ORs and it's a certificate of need state, the state is probably not going to approve your certificate of need application if unless you can demonstrate that the bandwidth capacity for the ORs in the hospital is completely booked and there's no availability for, you know, for additional cases. And the reason being is because they don't want an independent ASC to come into the area, take away from the caseload from the hospital, which is the piece of the service line that they provide that really props up a lot of the other service lines that are not as profitable. And in turn, perhaps put that hospital in a desperate financial situation, perhaps to even close and then impact access for the residents in the area. So you're you adding a two or three or four OR ASC to the area at the cost of the access of, to healthcare for the residents is not worth it in the state's eyes and CMS's eyes. So in non-CON states, obviously you don't have that barrier, that roadblock that you have to address, but I was just having a conversation just an hour ago with a, a physician. Um, they're like, I'm going to open it in a non-CON state so I can open my own ASC and I can do what I want in this regard. Well, you can, but so can everybody else. So if you're in a non-CON state, naturally, what's going to be higher? Competition. That's right. So it's obviously the, the marketplace dynamics are and the impact in the healthcare ecosystem is complex and beyond the scope of this discussion. But the point I want to make here is if you're in a CON state, if there is a fixed supply, if you hold an asset where there's a regulated fixed supply, that impacts the value of the asset. So sure. in a CON state, that creates a lot more durability of the value of a surgery center than in a non-CON state where, as you pointed out, Tina, anybody can walk across the street, build a new surgery center, and all of a sudden there, there may be more than we need. Yeah, your ability to compete for for customers or patients, your ability to compete with payers and negotiate worthy contracts, all the, all those things are impacted. Another variable that I 
And, you know, in terms of this is, it's a simplification. It's a rule of thumb. But one of the variables that I often implement in using uh, the data available to help my clients figure out, does it make sense to buy into the surgery center is the time to break even calculation. Meaning if I, if I pay $100, how long does it take for me to make $100 back from the thing that I'm investing in? This is mm -hmm. related to the multiple question. Am I buying something at 1x or 2x or 5x? And assuming flat growth, it's about the same. If I pay 1x EBITDA for a business, that means that over 12 months, I'm basically going to get the entire value of that back because it's one times the annual profit. If I'm paying three or five X and if growth is flat, meaning a surgery center is not growing, it makes a million dollars every year and I buy 1% of that and I pay five X EBITDA for that. That means I pay $50,000 for $10,000 worth of profit. So we can all do this math together. If I pay 50, I get 10 a year. That's a five year break even. As a rule of thumb, I personally, and Tina, I'm interested in your perspective on this. I like to see definitely less than three years, ideally somewhere between six and 15 months of time to break even. Sometimes it's like almost immediate. Sometimes it's like, if it's a more established surgery center, maybe we're like two plus years. And, and I, those don't have as much upside, but hopefully they have more stability and are more predictable. But if you're looking at like more than, 3x buy-in EBITDA multiple for a participating physician who's bringing clinical case volume. Those are opportunities personally that I get not that excited about. Yeah. And, and having an existing partner say, this is a good deal. You should just do it <laughs> is not part of the information package that I would think you would need to assemble to make that decision. Right. So historical dividends that are paid, you know, is there a, is there an, opportunity or a goal for an exit strategy, like you mentioned, any number of things would be things to consider in addition to the P&L as to whether your payback period is going to be short or long. But other people's opinions are probably not super significant in, in that data analysis part. That's right. And they may have bought in for 0.5x of a very small profit number. And now they're right. saying, hey, this is a great deal for me. You should do it too. And you're being offered 3X for a much larger profit number. And that is totally apples and oranges. So if you're going to you know, be buying the same asset, you want to be paying the same price <laughs> to get the same deal or else you want to understand why there's a difference. So mm -hmm. I, you're 100% spot on with that. Talk a little bit about sort of the billing and collections. And if you were doing an analysis of like, is this a good business to buy? And you're looking at the way that a surgery center bills. What are some red flags that you might be looking at to determine they're operationally really humming or, oh my gosh, they're a little bit sort of defunct and there's needs to be real change in order for this to make sense? Yes, yeah, so I think case, case cost would certainly be one. And then the revenue cycle management indicators. So how many days in AR, what what are your percentage of write-offs? What's the payer mix? Are 50% of your patients Medicaid? Well, then that's probably not super attractive. Are 50% of your patients commercial Blue Cross and you've got a, you know, a really optimal contract with commercial Blue Cross? Well, that looks a lot better to me. So just anything along the lines that would impact what actually comes in the door after, after it's billed. Um, and it may even be things like operationally, like 
Do we have an internal billing company or an internal billing team that is managed by, you know, someone with a lot of skill and experience and has performed well consistently? There's a track record and, and this is an optimal situation. We can check that box and, and know that that piece of the pie is taken care of. Or do we have a reactionary board who's changed billing companies four times in two years? Because all those things can impact what you actually collect for the work that you do. Yeah. And back to the percent of collections question. You know, if you're already taking a haircut on the professional fee, (laughs) you're taking another haircut on the collections because the internal billing team can't get payment from the insurance company. That's going to, you know, these employment agreements are often structured as net collections, meaning the work that you do and what you get paid for less any, you know, bad debt or collections that is ultimately never received by the practice, meaning that's coming out of your pocket. So you absolutely want to understand this. A thousand percent for sure. And one additional point on this, and then we can move on is uh, I am a big fan of having in the contract, the ability enumerated in black and white to be able to review this stuff as a physician who's producing and is being billed on your labor. You want to understand like, is our collections awesome? Is it terrible? Is it somewhere in between? Mm-hmm. And to what extent is my pay being impacted? If you don't have it in your contract, you know, if you're a business owner and one of your employees says, hey, let me see the guts of how you're performing operationally, that's, that's intimate operational detail that especially if it's going to be a source of embarrassment and maybe even like a lawsuit, you know, a business owner a practice owner is not going to necessarily be eager to share that, although hopefully they have nothing to hide. But if it's in the contract that you can review this stuff, you know, as needed to verify compensation accuracy, I, I think that's, I think that's reasonable. And I've seen that in some contracts and I've seen others that intentionally omit it, but that's a good thing to push for either in the surgery center context or in an employment agreement more broadly. Well, and there's, you know, there's also probably some key indicators about the operational efficiencies when you have conversation with not just the physician leadership of a surgery center, but say there's a chief administrator of the surgery center, or a chief nursing officer for the surgery center. How often are metrics examined by, say, the board and the operational leadership? You know, because a big thing in every, every provider that's in the ASC is giving up profi, right? I mean, that's a given. You don't make more money to take a patient to the, an ASC. You just simply don't. But our, is our facility performing well, similarly or poorly compared to national averages on room turnover? And where are we at in our contracts and supplies negotiation? Is our team proficient in billing pain services if the rest of the group is neurosurge or ortho or whatever? I've actually encountered more than one time, situations where physicians were told by hospitals that they couldn't do this procedure or that procedure because the hospital, that they lost money on the procedure, which is categorically incorrect. And it's it happens because either there wasn't a, an agreement on the pricing for the med device, perhaps, but more times than not, the billing staff was not trained or educated on how to bill this new service that's being performed. And, you know, maybe they build the first level of a spinal cord simulator correctly, but they build the second level at a dollar. Well, no, 
I, I realize that sounds like a like an outside kind of outlier situation, but it was not. I've seen that on more than one occasion. So making sure that the folks in your organization are, if they're not experienced and comfortable in building your particular service line, how are we going to get them to this point so that we make sure that we're maximizing that revenue as well? Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote from uh, Dr. Jay Greider, your neighbor down there at the University of Kentucky, who said, uh, hospitals claiming that they can't make money on a pain management physician is like uh, somebody saying, I can't make money running a money printing press. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. And I, I had another physician who actually had an instance where just simple administrative process was causing him heartburn or headache in taking patients to an ASC or an outpatient hospital facility. Why? Because those patients were scheduled with the central scheduling at the facility, but not put on his or her EMR schedule at the practice. So the practice billing team that's billing the pro fee did not have a check and balance to check themselves on the number of cases said provider had performed. You know, so putting even little things in place just to make sure that all your revenue is captured when you're off premise is so, so important. One last item as it relates to the surgery center, share classes, voting rights, what kinds of things have you seen on that front? I have seen everything from consistently equal across across all um, situations to varying by voting strength by specialty. So I've actually interacted with a client who is a pain doc in a multi-specialty surgery center, primarily ortho neurosurge group that actually had a surgery center. And the neurosurge providers might have one and a half votes per provider, whereas the pain providers may have only a half a vote per provider. So you can quickly see that in the event that there's something going on you that you wanted to advance your position on, it would be very, very hard to do that. And understanding the uh, the political landscape that that creates, either between specialties or between like along seniority lines is another one that I've seen. Like, you know, founding partners are the A shares and they decide if and when we're going to sell and at what price and, and how all that's going to work. And the B shares, like you can ride along on our coattails, but get in the back, sit down, shut up. And we don't want to hear from you for the duration of this ride, which that's is not right. inherently, I mean, it's all about expectations. So, I mean, I, I'm speaking a little pejoratively about the B class shares and sure. I mean, if I had, if I was buying into a business, I would want to have a, stay, a say in how we're going to make decisions and if we're going to sell and to whom and at what price. But if a business is running profitably and I can see the financials and the people in charge are, you know, experienced and are drawing on appropriate sources of data and wisdom to make decisions. And and I can participate as sort of passively and enjoy the fruits of the, you know, managing part. Yeah. Like I can live with that. It's not the worst situation in the world. I it's mean, all about just expectations. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, again, if you, if you can kind of know what you're getting into on the front end, that's really the key, right? You the terms are less key as long as you know what you're agreeing to, in my opinion. Yes, totally agree. So in summary, you know, any surgery center 
opportunity needs to be evaluated on its own merits. And while good surgery center deals are awesome <laughs> and can be a like a seven-figure event for participating physicians, bad deals happen all the time. And it's not uncommon. Like you buy into a surgery center and it kind of just is like slowly drowning. Can't ever quite get ahead. Can't ever quite get caught up. Quarter after quarter, year after year, things are kind of dragging along the bottom. And don't assume that just because you have access to a surgery center, it's it might not be one of those because it might. But if you look at all these different facets, understanding the site of service differential, thinking about efficiency and how that impacts your compensation, looking at the practice financials, looking at the operations and collections and accounts receivable, thinking about time to break even, thinking about the partnership health. Do the doctors like each other? Do they hate each other? Somewhere in between. And what's the political climate as it relates to voting classes? If you look at all these things, you kick the tires, then you can go in with eyes wide open, at least having quantified as many of the variables as possible, and hopefully uh, moving towards a successful engagement. Just just a question that just kind of popped in my head. Have you ever or would you advise a client who's looking at an opportunity that includes surgery center practice equity to investigate external environment. What do you mean? Well, so kind of on the same path as where, when we're talking to new fellows and we've given advice around, you know, first job, this and that. And you, I've heard you a couple of times and which I'm completely in agreement with, you don't have to roll into town and buy the biggest house and, and, you know, the biggest boat and, and all these things that are going to tie you to that area in case it doesn't work out. Um, similarly, if there's an external environment where perhaps the practice and or the surgery center are, are high performing now, but there's some external movement change in the landscape, the competition, the payer, something that is anticipated to adversely impact the performance. And I'm not putting you on the spot because I've never, it just kind of came into my head. I've never really actually, aside from market analysis and kind of site selection analysis, I've never really dove deep into that as it affects an ASC facility, but just kind of talking out loud. Yeah, great question. I mean, the way I would encourage a client to think about this, and I have we have addressed a specific question. The thing that I am like most attuned to as it relates to this question is is there a big rainmaker? Is there a 40% physician owner of the surgery center who's crushing the volume and is like a key player? And mm-hmm. if they, God forbid, got hit by a bus tomorrow, would significantly impair the value of my stake. Because I paid a hundred thousand dollars for the share, whether, you know, but if it goes from doing 10 million a year to 4 million a year to 1 million a year, I still paid what I paid. And if right. distributions dry up, that's one way you want to understand what the, what are the tail risk events that could really cause problems. So I think that's one thing that comes to mind and probably the main one. I'm always interested to understand the business risk to any specific opportunity. And a big part of that is we would call that like key man risk or key woman risk, the odds of, if any single person was disabled or killed, does that really harm the business? And can we insure around that? Sometimes there's you know insurance policies that would buy out the equity of the participating partners if we think that, oh my gosh, it would really sink the business. There's ways to right. protect against that. But that's definitely a part of 
the calculus. If you've got 37 doctors who are all partners and they're all doing about 137th of the case volume, that's a very stable situation. If you've got four doctors and two partners and one of them is a, a big one and everyone's just hoping to God that they <laughs> continue to do what they're doing, that's a different proposition altogether. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting and kind of thought talk, you know. Yeah. Good question. Tina, as always, thanks for joining us here on the on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.